this is Game Changers with Vicki Abelson, and my guest today is John Waite. John, you, you did make me wait a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, you know, it was uh, a little rough hooking up. I've been um, hooking up. It's been, um, yeah, it's been, uh, I've been doing interviews, so many, and podcasts. Um, it's like second nature now, but I'm just trying to cover everything. It's, it's like there's so many to do. You see, now I'm really bummed because I thought I was really special. You and are special. So now I'm kind of crushed. You're the best looking. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say, and I'm in my pajamas, as you know. Yeah, no, I, I like the pajama thing. The pajama thing. Before yeah. we're done, I'll, I'll be taking off the jacket. I wanted to wear a jacket because it reminded me of you. You, yeah. okay, let's talk about you, the natty dresser that you are. What? When you were a kid, did you have style? Did you? Yeah, I, I remember wearing my dad's or somebody's canary yellow waistcoat. <laughs> and um, and I had a, a pinstripe shirt and winkle picker shoes that I that my mum let me have when I was about eight. Wait a minute, what are winkle picker shoes? Well, the teddy boys used to wear them. They're like, they got points on the end and buckles. And it was like the mark of a rocker. Wow. And they had them in small sizes in this shop called Timpsons. And wow. she, let, she let me have them. And um, by the time I hit school, I, I had the full kind of look. I always had that kind of thing. where, But I made it out of um, hand-me-downs and bits and pieces. You know, it was never, I could never afford to go into a shop and buy great stuff. So you, you had that, were your parents styling? Was your mother styling? Where yeah, get... yeah, yeah, yeah. She could, she's beautiful. She's still alive. She's 96. She's, but she was a tremendous styling. Same thing though, make clothes. Uh, but she had it going on. She's, she was a beautiful woman, still is. And my dad, um, he had that thing too. He had a lot of uh, like character. He had a motorcycle. Wow. And, um, yeah, he was a mechanic. And um, I was just gonna say, what did he do for? Oh, Beth Sussman is saying hi to you. She's a mutual. Oh, hey Beth, that's lovely. Yeah, I remember <laughs> Beth. She's like yeah. New York again. Yeah. We're gonna have a lot of New York in the house. That's great though. You never get enough of that. But my dad, so, yeah, he, as we as he um, progressed through life and we made more money, he would show up in a really killer sports jacket or and he had a brush cut. And he was part of that 40s thing where people like Kerouac and all that, they, they look wow. like, they, yeah, no, he had that thing like the clothes are all baggy and, and he was a mechanic and he'd come home reeking of oil and petrol, but he was great looking. And he had the heavy boots and, and work pants. And then he'd go out and look at this motorcycle and mess around with it and then come back and solve chess problems. He was a chess master, my dad. Wow. Yeah. Was, was he a musician? No, but he loved music, and um, he could he could he spent all his life trying to turn me on to classical music, and I just couldn't get it, I, and especially opera, and uh, I regret it because as I got older, I I suddenly got it. Pavarotti. Really? Yeah. Have you it, gone? Have you gone to the opera and done that? Yeah, I've got in New York. I went a couple of times, and um, and uh, you know, I mean, I've I've started to collect it. I mean, it's you know. I mean, Nass and Dolma, you know, you hear Pavarotti doing that. It's like, you know, it's like, where's the handkerchief? You know, it's like, it just breaks your heart. It, any kind of music is great as long as it's got heart. And you have so much of it in yours. You, you, well, uh, 
I, I, I was saying that I've been listening to Wooden Heart. Why is it called Wooden Heart, John? Well, it's an acoustic record. It's three CDs. But in the 70s, they used to call folk music like Dylan mm -hmm. and Joni Mitchell and Neil Young. They used to call it Wooden Music. Mm. And wooden heart is obviously got like three or four meanings, but that's why it's called wooden heart. I love it. And and by the way, to everyone out there, I am going to first plug in, and then I'm going to put the link to John's uh, website where you can access all of his music and and the art. Okay, so John, behind you um, is something that you're working on. Uh, lean the other one. Yeah, that one. So so tell tell us about this. Well, it started off. Um, as a boxer, uh, 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 like a prize fighter, I'm working with Neil Giraldo on a musical for Broadway. Wow. Uh, and it's got pugilistic overtones. And so I was thinking about boxers a great deal. So I started off with a boxer and um, it's a collage. There's like buttons and uh, material. Uh, and it, it evolved into this other thing and then it became a scarecrow. Then it became back to a, just a, a face of character. And now it's back to boxer. It's, it's back to being um, a winner, which is uh, going to be kind of the scars of uh, outrageous fortune. You know, it's going to be uh, the price of, of winning, you know. And it's only just, I've, I've only just this morning, last night, uh, reconfigured the face and gone back in with some red and it's going to develop it's either going to develop or i'll paint it out again no i was saying to you before we went on on the air that on linkedin you had posted this fantastic self-portrait you had done and then you undid it and that's it and that's the same exact one yeah wow it was if a that's the one i think you're talking about but they go from they go from um they're like liquid you know and if you've got a if you if it just all clicks sometimes and you just move forward and sometimes it's fighting you all the way and but how I, about the one that's the one that's to your right we uh if you can yes. move your, your camera a little bit so we can see it i could see it before okay uh -huh. so, wow so now that's, that looks like, that's, that's a poster that's a poster from the uh, website the original is uh hang on. <clears throat> fantastic and uh, that's you with a guitar i assume yeah this is the original this is uh oh. And, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, we started off like a, a really small thing. I would come out of a gig. Um, turn, and, yeah, turn us back to you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I'd come out of a gig and there'd be people waiting in the rain or so people couldn't get in or couldn't afford to get in, which was even more wow. poignant. And I would do a small cartoon of myself on the albums. So I'd give them something a little extra for, for all that time and talk to them. I always talk to the people that wait. And um, but it was an it was an it was a small gift. It's like giving somebody a guitar pick, you know. It was a nicer thing. And uh, anybody that waits outside in the rain to see me, I'll spend an hour with them. So and and then people started ringing up and emailing me saying we really would like one, and I want one for my uh, rec room or whatever you call it, den. <laughs> and you know, and I, I so I, I started banging them out, and then I thought, well. I'm almost going back to being a full-time artist. So I, I started selling them. And then it became, there's other ones like, like this. Uh, this is uh, Arto, 
the French surrealist poet. Wow. Yeah. So this. So you work in different mediums. That looks like a yeah. charcoal. Yeah. No, it's it's, it's this is uh, crayon and um, crayon and and sharpies and watercolor. I can Whatever's see available. Sharpie. I love it. So now, are these things that? we the the little people can afford to buy jobs yeah the the smaller pieces are about 250 350 okay. and they go to about two grand the big are pieces they, are they all signed oh yeah they wouldn't i wouldn't oh yeah they're all signed but it's um like i said before we got on the air as we call it um i just been talking to a gallery that wants to represent me and i you know, I went to art school for four years and I was okay, going so to be a painter. Let's talk about that. So yeah. when you were a little kid, yeah. art came first or music came first? Well, it came together because um, my cousin Michael was a great guitar player. And my first memory of a guitar is Michael playing this great big national dobro kind of thing with a resonator in it, playing freight train. You know, freight train, freight train, going so fast. And Nancy Whiskey songs. Lonely Donegan Skiffle, you know. Right. Uh, but he was at art school mm -hmm. and he got kicked out of his mum's house for being such a, a kind of a rebel, really. And he went to live with my grandmother, my dear old lovely, beautiful grandmother, Nana uh, Lillian. And she put him in the spare room. My and he grandma had... Nana was Lillian too. Really? Yes, I swear. We called her Libby. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, nanas, man. Oh, God. But anyway, Michael, I was his favorite nephew, and he used to show me how to paint and play me songs. And uh, so they came together. I think in Britain at that point, the art scene was very closely linked to music, although nothing was happening outside of the shadows and Lonnie Donegan and, and uh, blues. We had a lot of... And country and western in its own strange way. What? Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah, Brenda Lee. I had a crush on Brenda Lee when I was six. <laughs> you know, it was really great. And uh, so I was always, country music was, was there before Cowboys and Indians, you know, Western music, Marty Robbins, Brenda Lee, uh, Jim Reeves, all that kind of corny stuff. And then wow. Michael played me Hank Williams. Uh, and that was like, you know, I was too young to get what was going on. It's like sex, you know. <laughs> you kind of suspect something great, but you don't know how it works, you know. And uh, being six, you put it together fairly soon, but it was just something I witnessed and, and was sort of party to that I didn't really know what was going on. Wow. And so, so, but your first, so, so your first career thought though, I mean, you went to art school. So was the, was the goal to be a professional artist? Yeah, I was going to illustrate um, pen and ink, uh, watercolors, that kind of thing. Uh, I was really influenced by the French um, uh, lithographers, Mouka. Everybody loved Mouka and uh, Toulouse-Lautrec. And Aubrey um, Beardsley when it came to line drawing and Sickert when it came, and Sargent when it came to painting. But everybody, I mean, it's a hard thing to express, but a lot of people in England are, are really kind of, you know, art is just in the room with them. You know, you have the quiz programs and they'll be, you know, like, like Mastermind and mm -hmm. some plumber from Wilsdon will be on and he, and he say, you're subject tonight, sir. He's going to go like Shakespeare's sonnets. And then the questions are about Shakespeare's sonnets. And this plumber from Neesden knows absolutely everything. 
Wow. I mean, people have that. And it's not considered uh, hoity-toity or like, you know, like, yeah. Uh, it's like my dad with the motorcycle. We were all very aware of art in Britain, especially in that, in that time. And it wasn't considered, um, like I say, highbrow. It was just, everybody just knew about it. TV was great. TV was very, there'd be plays that would be rock your world inside out and very hardcore, you know? And then, but the whole family all over the world, all over Britain would be watching it in all different, the queen would be watching it, wow. you know? Yeah. And so what, 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 where did music start for you? Did it start with a guitar from your, from your uncle? Well, no, uh, cousin. Your cousin. cousin. Um, um, well, yeah, my brother Joe got a guitar, a guitar when I was about 10 or eight, eight, and he was 11. Mm -hmm. And um, really a cheap, nasty guitar, but they're worth thousands of dollars now. And wow. he became a really brilliant guitar player. He, he moved on to a Fender Telecaster pretty fast. But he was the local rogue, really. He was out there, you know, being a bad boy and playing the guitar, and he was really good. I can't tell you how good Joe is. And um, still is. And I mean, I go home and I he pulls out the guitar and plays something and I go like, how the fuck did you do that? Wow. You know? But I was in his shadow and I, I wanted to play bass, which is what I did with the babies. Mm -hmm. I love the bass. I like the zenness of it. I love bass lines. I love the cello, the oboe, double bass. And my mind was always following the bass line. And uh, I was listening to a lot of blues and um, would play along on the top four strings of Joe's guitar. And then I got a small bass. And, what was uh, your first bass? I had a Rickenbacker. I played bass for oh. about five minutes. What, what, was your, what was your first bass? Well, my, my brother had a band and the bass player bought a Fender Precision and he gave me for five pounds his Hofner guitar, his Hofner bass. He was wow. a, a president with a Telecaster body he'd made in wood, wood shop, you know, whatever you call it. And put it all together. And I had this little Mickey Mouse kind of like medium scale, but a Rickenbacker's a very nice guitar, you know. It was a lot so that was my first bass. And um, and I, I it was always there. I played art school dances with Joe, my brother, and then I got my own band together, and then I left art school. And so when you were playing, when you were playing in bands when you were in school. What kind of music were you playing back then? Oh, blues. It was blues. There's a lot of, like, we, you know, I listened to a lot of blues at the time. So it was Elmore James mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, B.B. Uh, King and all that. Some Hendrix. We did, I tried wow. Hendrix and Traffic, Humble Pie, mm -hmm. uh, Free, that kind of thing. Um, I was just learning to be a singer, really. I never thought of myself as a singer. I thought of myself as a bass player. So how did, it, how did that, have, so were you not the lead singer in your early bands? Well, no, I'd, I'd take a song or two, but uh -huh. it, was, it was like a, it was like a, something that was required to get through the night. I knew I could sing. It's right. just, I didn't think it was going to be where I was going. But when, when the babies were, were together and they didn't have anybody that wrote songs and I could write songs and I could play bass and I could sing. So between me and the guitar player, with me, they had a band. Without me, they didn't have anything. And I had to step into the, the role of singer, which I was more than prepared to do. Uh, I'm so not being coy. I love to sing. And uh, I just didn't have that ego that would say, oh, Lord, fuck it, maybe I did. 
in my polite English way. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I, I always knew how it should be. And if somebody was overplaying and I had songs that I'd written and I could sing. And I think I became a better singer, much better singer as I got older. But uh, when you listen to the baby's early stuff, I seem to be pretty much there, you know. Pretty much there. Did you did you ever take voice lessons? Did you ever take guitar yeah. lessons? Did you take bass lessons? No. Nothing. I can't read music either. As I saw that fabulous McCartney 321 mm -hmm. thing on Hulu. Mm -hmm. And um, everything that McCartney said, I'd already said the week before in some podcast. I mean, I, I thought, is Paul listening to me? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you know, the bass can, can control a band. And I said that about two weeks before. And I thought, Paulie. But, uh, but I think bass players feel a certain way about music. And the bass is such a, it's like the dark shadow. You know, you can do so much with it. And you can suggest things as the band is playing live. And you can guide the band into something. And then if you're not playing the root note, you're kind of like in, uh, you're in jazz. But if if the if the lead line is is rock or just folk or whatever, you have something to. You you've got something. You can you can. You can put something across that might just be original or trying to be. Well, you're certainly that. If nothing, you original is something you are and have always been. So, so you're playing blues in the early days. And when did you like write your first song? When did you realize, oh, I can do this? Well, um, with the babies, um, when I was a little kid waiting for the bus to, to, to go home from school, the bus was Scottforth 11. That was, I lived in Scottforth and the bus, double-decker bus was called 11. It'd come around the corner and I was singing this song, Scottforth 11. You know, so I was always messing around at the back of my head. But uh, when the babies, when, when we were, me and Mike Corby, the guitar player, would we're just feeling it out and trying to come up with something. I wrote two songs over a weekend to give us something to play. And then we went in the studio and recorded them. And I was a singer. So over the space of a week, I went from being a bass player that was looking for a gig to lead singer, major songwriter with a band that was about to, you know, it just happened. And um, instead of like going, ah, I went like, yeah, you know, I, I, I it was just, I had so much more I could do. And it was just what I lived for, really. I, I, I not told myself it was possible, but once it was, I ran with it, you know? So it was just being in the moment and it just started to come together. How did it come together? How did that start? How did the baby well, I'd just come back from America. I'd gone off to, to Cleveland to, uh, to join a band that was supposed to be getting a record deal. They didn't. I stayed for like five months, fell in love with Cleveland and Cleveland Radio, Kid Leo. The mm. people, the people were great. Everybody was like really friendly, warm, funny. It was America. It mm. was like at my first McDonald's the, the, <laughs> morning, the morning I got there. And it was, I was just talking about that with the band the other night. And it was like, oh man, McDonald's, you know. But, um, and I came back kind of like, uh, I just didn't, have any money and I pretty thin it it bombed out and I um I went to London and this guy from a guitar shop um said he knew somebody that was trying to put a band together did I want to come down and have a jam and it was 
Mike Corby and this guy Gordon fell away pretty fast and me and Corby were stuck with each other. So it, it just kind of got to that and I was writing songs and then Tony Brock came down, the drummer, mm -hmm. who was the happening guy on the London scene as a drummer, mm -hmm. very powerful player. And we had a three-piece band and the manager started trying to get us a record deal. And where did the name The Babies come from? Well, one day me and the, we, first of all, I'm dyslexic. I don't put I-E-S. I always put Y when it's plural. And um, that was uh, going to be my next question. Why is it with a Y? Okay, good. There you yeah, go. The, yeah. Uh, well, I was having a row with the, with the, with the, uh, or oh, we're all having a row with the, with the manager. We're in this rehearsal space we had on Tooley Street, which was by the Thames. And I can't even begin to tell you how Dickensian it was. It was like big, massive uh, warehouses and it was always foggy. And there's a little pub on the corner and this little old man used to play the piano. You know, my old man said, follow the van and I'll dilly dally on the way. Yeah. It was just so, it was like Mary Poppins. It was like ridiculous. Like Oliver, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> go on, city yourself. And uh, Lionel Bart, yeah. And uh, it was all those, it was like, what the fuck are we? It was like, it was absolutely like a fairy tale, but rough. And um, what was the question? Uh, how that you got the name The Babies. Oh, right. So we're in this cellar in this big furniture warehouse owned by these artists from the Royal College. They were painting and stuff and making stuff in the, in the warehouse. We were downstairs playing. And... Um, the manager and me were having a big set to, or with all of us, and he went, ah, he said, you're all a bunch of fucking babies. <laughs> he was like an East End gangster, you know, and then he ran out and slammed the door, and we all stood there like, well, yeah, maybe we, and then he burst back in and said, that's it, you're called the babies, and um, yeah, so it went from, you're all a bunch of fucking babies, to the babies. And then when I was writing out songs like babies songs, instead of putting IES or whatever, I naturally being dyslexic, put the Y. And that's why it had the weird spelling. It just stuck. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I kind of love that. So, okay. So you guys have come together. You, he's shopping a deal for you. You guys are writing, you're writing music Yeah. going on. Yeah. Okay, so your process, John, because there's, I'm a writer, there are some writers out there. What comes first for you? I, I read that, that, and I don't know if this is true, that you wrote the lyrics to Missing You in like minutes, like 20 minutes. Is oh, that yeah. so? Yeah. No, I, I, I made it up over somebody else's chord changes in a studio. I went round to somebody's house to, to finish this song we're working on, it wasn't that good. The album was almost finished, but I knew we hadn't got a song. And he was looking for this track that we'd worked on the night before, and he hadn't put any code on the tape, so he didn't know where it was. And he hit stop and play, and this other uh, instrumental came on. Dun, 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 you know, like... Uh, yes! Like, like, you know... And, and I said, what's that? And he went, ah, it's nothing. I'm just working on it. It's, uh, and it had chord changes and it went somewhere. And I said, just give me a shot of that. I swear to God, you know, that there's something there. And I, I went in the next room, the bedroom with the headphones, the home studio. 
and I used Every Time I Think of You, which is um, a baby song to get started. And I got the whole first verse and the whole chorus in one. Wow. And um, it was like being hit in the head. I mean, I knew it was good. I knew it was the number one. It knocked the wind out of me. I actually, I actually choked. It, I was so emotional, I couldn't sit, even start the second verse. And um, everybody knew it was going to be number one, really. I just was listening to uh, to Wooden Heart and and heard the the acoustic version again, and I almost prefer it. It's it's so raw, it's so you, <laughs> um, and it's so grown up. That's what we were talking about before. It just yeah. feels. Well, yeah, um, I, I, I don't want to push you to. Good. You went completely. I couldn't hear a thing you said for about four seconds. Uh, well, because uh, I interrupted you. You know, I'm, I'm a girl. That's what I do. I interrupt. I'm annoyed. No, I, I interrupted you, and I'm sorry. I, I keep I keep sort of running off at the mouth, really. But... No, I'm I'm loving that. I'm loving that. I was going to say you're holding a guitar right now, so I was going to ask you to play a little on it, if you would. Well, what do you want? Every time I think of you, oh, God. I always catch my breath, and I'm still standing here, and you're miles away. And I'm wondering why you left And there's a storm that's raging Through my frozen heart tonight I ain't missing you at all Since you've been gone away I ain't missing you at all No matter what my friends might say, I ain't missing you at all. Oh my God, you gave us a taste. Wow, that was well. well I, I should have gone to the higher note, but I just I just woke up. I took a nap before our interview. No, I'm sorry. That's that, that was just perfect for me. Uh, thank you for doing that. Uh, so okay, so writing music. Okay, so the babies happens. Are you expecting how it blows up? Are you, I imagine your life changes. I, okay, so you're from humble beginnings, John? I am, working class family. We were, my first memory is uh, with my cousin Mary playing on a, on a rug next to a, a board floor mm -hmm. over a motorcycle shop at the family garage. And um, we lived in a terrace cottage after that with about 10 terrace cottages facing into the countryside, wow. cornfields, cornfields, a big valley. Uh, it was an idyllic childhood. And wow. opposite, there was a massive park that had lanes and strange twists and turns and a huge structure in the middle. It was really, and there was a Quaker cemetery about a hundred yards up the road. Um, that was from the 16th century, I think, 17th. Wow. But that's where I was raised. I mean, I think that's my affinity for country and blues is that I really was brought up like that. We had an outside toilet uh, behind the alley. Oh! Like a stone wash house with a toilet. We didn't have a bathtub. Uh, when I was a little kid, they give me a bath in front of the electric fire in a tin tub. Wow. Yeah. Great. So so and yes, wonderful. So okay, so when you're in high school, humble, you're still. Did you have job jobs, John? Did you ever like work a job? 
Um, yeah, when I left school, um, um, after art school, uh, I went straight from school to art school after the summer holidays. But after that, or in the summer holidays, I worked at a service station on the motorway. Me and my best mate went and got jobs there, but they, they were put me in the, um, in the kitchen washing dishes and I lasted 36 hours. <laughs> yeah. I showed up the second day for my wages. Yeah. And um, that was a little I, too humble. Yeah. And, and I also worked in the Winter Gardens, um, which is a theater in Morecambe, which is four miles from Lancaster on the sea um, wow. in the flies of the Winter Gardens, pulling the curtains apart for the for people like uh, oh we had such a lot of bit the tiller girls all sorts of like vaudeville and i was in i was with all these gypsies and my brother and real hardcore guys and me just being an art you know trying to pull these things but i mean that's the cinema that's the theater that uh, laurence olivier uh did um the entertainer is it the entertainer oh my God. Do you remember that movie? That's yeah. Morecambe. That's that's the next town over from Lancaster. But that's where they filmed that. Wow. And when you look at the seafront, you see all the places that I knew. We used to go there and paddle in the in the in the sea and and go to the arcades. And it was like a big, big, big day out to go to Morecambe. But Laurence Olivier, yeah, stayed in a boarding house there. Uh, Laurel and Hardy uh, went there on that tour of Britain that they made a movie about. You know. Wow. Dan and Ollie. Um, yeah, my mother was pregnant with my brother Joe, and she was outside uh, the Winter Gardens, I think it was, and and uh, Ollie came out and they were stood there, and Ollie waved his tie at my mum. Oh. Yeah, it's great shit. You know, it's like, and this is America. These are this is like all this sort of thing, even though it was a black and white world and it was kind of dark, and there was all this like gangster sort of like chic and uh, vaudeville and, and ballad singers and before rock and roll quite. Uh, it's very evident in um, performance. Nicholas Rogue's movie with, J with Mick Jagger and, uh, but that world of Soho was sex and it was like, it was kind of rock, but it wasn't that yet. The Cray Twins. And that was the fifties Britain. And then as the Beatles kicked in in the 60s, everything changed overnight. Right. Everything. You know, all the guys who used to kick the shit out of you at school wanted to be hip. And uh, the poor bastards that couldn't get out of the life that they'd found themselves were still going to beat you up. But it, it was moving out of uh, this isolation, this Northwestern thing. And because the Beatles were from Liverpool, which was only 70 miles uh south of us so mm -hmm. you know it gave everybody a voice and suddenly everything was rock and roll so when did that happen for you because i don't even know this it, okay in america it was all about ed sullivan that's when we found the beatles yeah yeah when when did the beatles go crazy for you well we i, I actually saw the first tv appearance on the tv it was on a um i think it was called people and places and i it was on at 6 30 at night on a black and white TV. And there'd been a, a kind of a rumor about them, a rumor that there's this band from Liverpool and you're not gonna believe it. And I don't know how I heard of it, probably from Michael or Joe or my, my, my auntie Carol. 
um, or cousin Carol, is it? I don't know. What, no, auntie. <laughs> and uh, auntie, a very beautiful girl. And um, th there they were. It just, you know, I think it was please, please me or love me do. But they came back about two weeks later and, and did another single. And um, but I actually saw their first appearance, and it and it was, was like it before we got them. Was it before nineteen sixty? Oh man, yeah, it was about two years before. And wow. It was, yeah, it was just a single. They hadn't put out the album yet. Wow. And then I think with the uh, the second Beatles album was the one they toured America with. So it would have been at least a year, year and a half. Everybody had meet the Beatles, but I had introducing the Beatles, which was yeah. the orange cover from Beginning yeah. Day, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Different so, album. So you're already playing music then. Are you playing music then? No, I'm just, um, I'm trying to look cool. <laughs> um, you know, um, my dad found a bootless tie, or he said he'd found it, uh, out <laughs> on the garage front, we used to call it, where people walked by. He might have he might have bought it for me or something. He's a very shy person. But, uh, but he had a saddle. He had a saddle, a silver saddle. And it had silver tips. And it was a string tie, you know. But mm -hmm. I wore that thing out. I mean, it was like, that was the hippest thing, you know. I had a bootlace tie. And then I got some beetle boots. And, um, and then that was like, but I was only about 10. Wow. You know, uh -huh. it was bigger than life itself. When the Beatles, I mean, my learning about being grown up was wrapped up in the Beatles and James Bond, you know, the James Bond movies. That was like, that was girls. That was very sexy girls that were like, you know, I was probably way out of my mental leap. But I was becoming, I was becoming very fascinated with girls. And, and then you had these extremely uh, beautiful women in the James Bond movies. And then a Beatle married a Bond girl, and then what are you gonna yeah. do with that? What, gonna, you what are you gonna do with that? Didn't see that coming. <laughs> you didn't see that coming at all. Yeah. Oh, okay, so did you did you grow your hair? Did you have a beard? Oh yeah. Oh. I was the only kid in town with long hair. I really was. And it was red. I mean, people don't, I mean, it's, it's all, died now and messed up and, but it was red. It was genuinely like a, chestnut red my beard was red when it came in and so i had the double whammy of having long hair and it was red dressed up in this yellow waistcoat with the pinstripe <laughs> i mean i don't know how i had the balls to do it but when you're that age you believe in it so much you know it was part of you 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 know go ahead no that was it. it was part of what part of the so you're you're like a dedicated follower of fashion though you and and a and a, and a a maverick of fashion yourself, that whole, that whole androgynous baby. Yeah. Yeah. Thing. You've, you've had that signature earring forever. Um, the one drop earring is kind of the John Waite thing. Is um, it really? I think it is. I mean, I associate it to you. I always have. Um, and then, and then you had the makeup. I mean, so what was that how has it been like? What has it been like for your family, for your parents? Well, no, it wasn't. It wasn't like you think. I mean, I mean, I mean, the only thing with the makeup was was coal pencil because Keith Richards had he would always wear coal, which was this Indian eyeliner thing that you'd put in your eyes and it looked really intense, and that was considered like dandy but like tough. If you were going to go out and you're wearing coal, you were Keith Richards. <laughs> 
if you had the earring as well, you better fucking be careful because <laughs> you look like. But I used to go out wearing tiger skin jackets and shit in London. I always dressed sharp. You and uh, a lot of other people did. Uh, but it was a small community of people. The makeup thing, Mike Corby was extremely into the makeup. Mm -hmm. I mean, I see some candid shots of us standing around on the street and he's got the full gear on. He's like wow. the red cheeks and the, the hair permed. And, and it, I would just put some coal in there in my eyes. And I always look kind of like a, I had a great tailor. I had this guy on Sunset Strip called um, Glenn Palmer. And he was one of the chief tailors at Granny Takes a Trip on the King's Road, which turned into sex which was Vivian Westwood's store. The Sex Pistols, everything, right? Wow. But he'd, he'd come to America and had a small shop up from the uh, Whiskey A Go-Go on the next block going towards, going west. And as I came into LA, I think the first time we drove down Sunset and I looked left and there was this incredible jacket in the window with like, you know, thunderbolts all over it. And um, I thought, whoever that is, I'm going to go and see him. And I went to see him and he was from the north of England, like me. He didn't have any airs and graces. He was like, he was offended Joe Cockers. <laughs> and he'd hung out with Joe in the early days. He became a very close friend of uh, Tom Petty and lived with Tom right up to the end of his life. Wow. And uh, Yeah. But he made all my clothes in the, in the baby. I would go to him and say, I've only got $200. What can I have? And he'd go in the back and pull out these bolts of 50s material and say, what do you want? And I go like a two-piece suit and uh, I want some gold lame sneakers to go with it. Oh. And, and two weeks later, he'd, he'd have it. Like oh. a, a leopard skin suit. I had a leopard skin corduroy print, you know, and then a suit with like spaceships on, they weren't spaceships, but it was like 50s hard to find material. And he was an absolute master tailor. And, oh, I, and your suits just fit you so brilliant. Well, they were, you know, it's all it's all tailored. And I think part of the the baby's success would have to be part of what Glenn did, because I couldn't have presented that kind of thing without Glenn. You know, it was just great, spectacular. Did you ever shop in New York at Trash and Vaudeville? Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The shut now, it's I, gone. I know. So I was, what, What'd you do with all those clothes? Did you keep your, do you have your clothes? Yeah, no, I've, I've, a lot of them, as some of them just wore out, got stolen, but I've got like four or five of the original suits. Okay. And um, I, I mean, he was still making them for me up to about like 10 years ago. And I have the, uh, the original leopard skin jacket and, uh, but it's all mint condition. And, um, you know, one of these days they'll probably wind up in the hard rock, you know? Of course. And so where do you shop now, John? Well, we're in, we're going to talk Goodwill. about a Goodwill. I actually do. I, 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 uh, I try and find forties, uh, jackets and, um, I mean, I really have an eclectic taste, but I think you put anything together and it's going to look cool, you know, with the right kind of boots or the right kind of shirt. It's an art really, but, uh, I don't dress it up as much. I try and be more formal. You know, I try and do the sort of uh, elder kind of um, suave man of the world degenerate look, you know. <laughs> well, that's why I've got my jacket on over my pajamas for you. Pajamas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. That's just, uh, uh, let me get rid of this. Hang on, I, uh, I'll, 
Never mind. Oh, uh, is a guitar player. Hmm. Yeah. Calling from Boise, Idaho. All right. Okay, so speaking of Boise, Idaho, you just, yeah. I believe, played your first gig since the shutdown in India Indianapolis. Were you in Indianapolis? Yeah, we did it. We did a gig about two months ago in, oh. in Gilroy, a private, a big private gig in Northern California, and uh, for major money. And uh, we just did uh, Indianapolis Fair, uh, Indiana Fair, uh, State Fair about three days ago. And so, how? okay, so I wanna to talk to you about COVID. The people who watch this, I, I started in, um, when the pandemic started, I started going live seven days a week. Really good uh, for you. To just, cause I had nothing to do and I wanted to be of service to everybody else. So I just yeah. did it. And so we're called yeah. the COVID crazies cause we were all a little crazy about all Thank this you. stuff. So how, I want to talk to you about what you did when all that happened, but how was it going out there and being in a live venue, a lot of people at a state fair? Um, did you feel safe? Did it feel okay? You know, I didn't think about it. I mean, I, I, I got on um, LinkedIn and, and was critical of, of um, Eric Clapton. I have to say I was for saying, you know, it's okay to come if you can't not, you can be unvaccinated and come to my show. And I think that's bullshit. He actually won't play venues that are insisting on people proving that they're vaccinated. Well, everybody's got their own thing, you know, and he had a bad, bad reaction to his shot. And I think I did too, looking back on it. But I'm vaccinated and now he is. But if you're not vaccinated, you can pick it up and spread it. And uh, the British papers are full of people dying mm -hmm. that we were swearing they were never going to get the shot. And now they're dead. And I, I just thought it was somewhat, um, you know, the other, the only word I can think of is selfish. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, there's a chance like one in two million, you're going to have a bad adverse reaction to it. They're great odds. They're really good odds. The alternative is dying on a respirator alone. Your family aren't allowed in the room. Right. You die an agonizing death and you die alone. Mm -hmm. And so, I thought that was irresponsible. Van Morrison is the same way. They're, they're friends and they've been doing this thing like, you know, you don't have to get vaccinated. But now all these people in the South, in the Midwest, in America, are becoming seriously ill. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's mutated into something that's even more virulent and, and really deadly. I mean, come on, people. It's like a flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. It's like a polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. Let's go. Grow up. Bite the bullet, get the fucking vaccine, grow up, let's go, and let's get through this. We're like in our second year now, and it's mutating again and again. If you don't get vaccinated, it's not good. One of the women who's watching the show today, her name is Laura. Her sister and brother-in-law were anti-vaxxers. They both just came down with COVID. He's paralyzed. He's, his limbs are paralyzed. You know, it's uh, not a joke. It's not a funny thing. And, I, you know, I, I don't I, I literally heard that Clapton said he will not play venues where they insist people are vaccinated. I know. That's just craziness. But anyway, well, you know, I mean, I mean, Bruce Springsteen was under a lot of pressure in New York. Mm -hmm. He said he said either get vaccinated or you're not coming in. And there was all these middle class people, all these like, you know, obviously people with money. They weren't just like people trying to start a fight, 
all outside his concert complaining. But he went back to it. I think he's almost relenting. And then he said, no way. And now it's back. You know, if you're not vaccinated, don't bother. And a lot of people on Broadway are doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, look, geez. I mean, you say something. I mean, I feel like I'm just going crazy, but I mean. No, uh, no, no. I, I, I'm in total agreement. And uh, I'm in awe that you, so you got on a plane and you traveled to. Yeah. So how, what, did you feel okay? You felt? Well, I've been vaccinated. I mean, it's, the chances of getting it again are like so incredibly small. Well, uh, John, they're not though. A lot of double vaxxed people are getting yep, now. They're I've not. They're not going to the hospital. They're not dying. But I know yeah. about eight people that got really sick in the yeah. last recent. Yeah, my girlfriend just just said uh, she's she's got a, a chest thing going, and she says I feel terrible, and she's gone off to get tested. But I get it. I mean, I really do get it, and I'm not being glib or like you know left, you know, like uh, I'm just saying. I mean, I, I got the same kind of reaction that that um eric clapton did i got like pains in my feet and my hands and it stayed for like a month and i just realized after reading his symptoms that i got the same wow. thing but wow. but you know when you're vaccinated you've got like a, a very very strong chance of not you know you you wear the mask and you sanitize and you don't breathe on people or get too close you just respect other people so how did you handle after the show, John, when you were at the state fair and everybody wanted to see you afterwards? How did you? I was shaking hands with everybody. I mean, I, I it's part of the gig, and um, I think, I think a lot of people have asked. I mean, I know I'm maybe digging a hole for myself, but I'm I'm in that mental place now, mm -hmm. where I just, it's me and it. You know, I've done everything I can do to fight it and I'm not gonna stay home any longer and I'm gonna play music. Mm -hmm. And I think playing music is gonna send a message to people that it's time to come out and, um, and get involved in life again and uh, be careful, but come out. We can't, nobody can keep this up. I think the psychological damage of the last year and a half is just so massive. From a totally traumatic. So tell us about your experience. So when, when everything, when it first started, did it interrupt work for you? Wow. Uh, what were you in the middle of? I was in the middle of touring. I'd just come back from New York on the train and I was gonna kick off some more dates after about, and they all got canceled, moved. Uh, the European tour got moved. Um, and then, wow, yeah, there was no vaccine then. Right. And everybody was like housebound. I just relent. I just said, "Well, that's it." You know, I'm I'm stuck. What did, had, what did you do? How did you How did you live when? In the well, I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid saying it, but I just drank an enormous amount of red wine. <laughs> I, <laughs> I used to do. I used to go to the store every morning with a mask on and the whole thing, and buy a couple of bottles of really good red wine and something for dinner, and would cook dinner. And then basically get hammered, you know. And uh, and I did that. I mean, man, uh, you had to be toxic, you know. But it was no way you couldn't go out. I remember going to look at the ocean, which is only like a block away, mm -hmm. and thinking it was dangerous to go out into the Palisades Park. You know, it was everybody was like. And then we had a kind of a riot here, 
there was a Black Lives Matter protest that turned right. extremely ugly. And um, there was windows kicked in and looting and, and it was about to go to the full on boil. And the National Guard came in. And at that point, it was like, you know, is it time to leave America? Is it time to, to rethink what I'm doing with my life? But I, I went back in the studio. I went back in the studio. That's what I was going to ask you. Were you prolific? Oh, so you, that was a product of Yeah. COVID. I mean, the, the, the third CD is a three CD set. Mm -hmm. The other two CDs have been out. But yes. I, was, I, was, I was looking at the painting. You know, the, uh, this, uh, this is the poster. But uh, I was looking at the drawing that was going to be for sale. And it looked like an album cover. It looked like Dylan's self-portrait. Mm -hmm. And and I guess being a Dylan fan, I thought about the bootleg series one two three, which I was listening to when I was in bad English, and um, I think it all just fell into place. I I went and recorded at the Doghouse, my favorite studio, mm -hmm. and it only took about three days. Wow! And, and then I just I put it out. It's 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 one of those things that's. Uh, I'm really proud of it, actually. It's, I think it could be the best thing I've done. It's hard to say that because I know people are, they have their favorites, Missing You mm -hmm. and the Babies and, and Bad English and all that. But there's something in that record, the records, that's me. And um, the You're singing is, is committed. It's not, and I wasn't really worried about anything. I just sang the thing and it was, that's done, next. You know, it was like, it felt like I'd come into my own. Wow. A difficult situation. And, and there was something very, uh, I don't know. I'd finally arrived, I thought. Yeah. That's really fabulous. And, and at the same time, you were also doing art. You were, you were. Yeah. I think that was, that was what really was part of what got me through. I, uh, I, I'd, before the pandemic, I'd went out, I went out and bought like 20 canvases and uh, an incredible amount of paint and brushes. And um, I actually went out again and bought some more Blick, good old Blick. And, um, and everything just turned upside down. It was like I became kind of like completely into that. And I was reading a lot. I was reading, getting through a book every two days. You know, I was like reading some amazing stuff. What, 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 what would you, can you tell us anything that you read that? Uh, well, I tell, you know, one of the rock and roll things that might be interesting is I, I, I read M Train by uh, Patti Smith. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's a tremendous talent. Uh, musically, she's spectacular. Mm -hmm. As a poet, she's, there's nobody comes close to her outside. You know, but she's equal to Dylan, mm -hmm. really. She really is. And, but her writing style and her honesty, uh, they're just so, I mean, M-Train really moved me. I actually did a portrait of Patsy and that, that, that got sold immediately. But uh, uh, just, just so great. Uh, actually, last time I was in New York about two months ago, I went down to Cafe Eno, uh, which is just sort of on the end of Houston in those beautiful old buildings on the west side and she wrote or oh, came up with most of the idea for uh, M-Train in Cafe Eno in the corner seat and it's closed now but I went all the way down there and I found it after really I just closed 
And I looked in and there's, there's the corner where Paddy was musing and writing these spectacularly beautiful, I mean, it's, it's high art. But, uh, you know, I mean, there was Paddy, uh, I read a, um, a biography on Caravaggio, the mm -hmm. painter. Mm -hmm. He was a complete nutcase that was the father of realist painting. Mm -hmm. And uh, biographies, a lot of biographies and poetry and some of its fiction, uh, George Simenon, the French writer. I mean, everything. I mean, honestly, I just love literature, books, as, as John Lydon would say. It's nothing, again, it's nothing like, you know, I'm clever. I'm, I'm, if I was clever, I wouldn't be reading any books. I mean, I just love learning stuff and people's opinions, you know, I mean, I, I, I've got everything here from F. Scott Fitzgerald to, I just discovered Hemingway about four years ago. I tried to read Hemingway on two separate occasions and just thought, I don't get it. You know, farewell to arms. And four years ago, I read it again and got it. So you slowly work through Hemingway and it's like an education, you know, movable feast. Uh, you know, it's just go like, what fuck, wow. And then you go back and read the stuff you read as a kid that you didn't really get. Mm -hmm. You know, Herman Hesse, Steppenwolf. I love, Herman Hesse was my favorite when I was a teenager. Wow. Yeah, that's great stuff. So John, in my house where I'm sitting right now for 12 yeah. years, I've had a literary salon. Really? Month, yes, where people come and read from their books, celebrities who write books and wow. then musicians play and many of your friends have played in my living room and Mickey Dolenz has read his book and sang and Howard Dillon oh, read and sang and all these crazy people so when when the pandemic is done and I'm ready to have 50 people in my living room again I would love for you to come and, uh, and you know I, I honestly mean it I mean I'll, I'll come I I, I, I think we have a, a rapport and I like your style and I mm -hmm. like your jammies and um <laughs> I have to shoot the whole thing. Yeah, yeah baby, take it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, right. yeah. We're going, we're going for the full pajama look now. No more yeah, jobs. Yeah. Oh, come on, yeah. Okay. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come. I really would. And, and that's like the soiree, you know. It's just exactly. It's a soiree. It's like it's like a Gertrude Stein kind of thing. We eat. People bring food. We eat. Lovely. We talk about the art. We chat. We yeah, it's all it's all. The that's very that's very New York. That's very New York. Yes, I did it in New York as well. I used to do did it you? in both. Yeah, in both places. Yeah. Wow. Um, before, before we sort of went on the air, uh, you know, if everybody's, nobody's aware of it, we were talking about New York in the spectacular years of New York. Wow. So, we were, okay, so tell me about your New York experience. So you lived, you lived on the Upper West Side, yeah. which wasn't really the music scene so much. No, I, that was when I first got there, when I, when I made the first solo album. And uh, when I came back and I, I had Missing You, I was living uh, in London Terrace Towers, like 22nd, 23rd Street down there. On That's why you know Spodiotis. Uh, well, you know, I mean, th those clubs used to be all over the city, just like... Right, but Spodiotis was right yeah. down by London Terrace there. Yeah, yeah, it was right on the... Uh, was almost in the meatpacking district, wasn't Fran, it? Fran Leibowitz lived in London Terrace. I don't know if she still does, but there I were a lot. Patty, yeah, I think I think uh, I think Ashley Patty Smith lived there for a while. And I was going to say that too, and I wasn't sure if I was right about that, but I think yeah, no. But in the book, it, 
she's talking about like uh, she she because it's down the, the street from the Chelsea. Yes, it is. So it's just like, and I think it was something that came up and she moved in with Maplethorpe, I think. But uh, but the fabulous scene though that we we both saw. Ugh. I mean, you, you know, you look at New York now and it's a bit like, yeah, but but back then the people and and the funkiness of it all and the the lights, the people, the energy. Scene. The, the music scene, I mean, you could go from one end of town to the other and there was live music everywhere, every yeah. night. Yeah. Uh, talking about Humble Pie, I saw Humble Pie at the Fillmore East in like 1971 or something crazy. Did you, was that when they recorded the album? I did not see a live recording night. I, I saw them play, but they weren't recording a live album the night that I saw them. Too bad, but... Um, yeah, no, I mean, good God. I mean... Yeah, it was I, crazy there. John, have you thought about writing your own memoir? Well, there's a documentary been filmed and it's finished. And it's it's in the final process of getting clearance from some music publishers. Um, they had to go to Led Zeppelin, which was very flattering. They, they okayed me singing whole lot of love. Wow. And, um, yeah. Well, I know Robert through Alison. And and sort of, I just know everybody. But there's, there's this movie. Do. Yeah, but uh, about that too. Yeah, but you know, but there's a documentary, and that's out next year, and that's really been um, enough. I mean, it's always enjoyable to chat, but I mean, talk about yourself in day three. You know, it's back to the red wine. I mean, it's like you know, it's just like. <laughs> There's only so much you can say about yourself before you're just sick of it. But it's a major thing that a lot of people being interviewed and um, footage from the babies, my first appearances and uh, the whole Fantastic. thing. Fantastic. And it's pretty honest. It's pretty honest, you know. But there's there's a difference. I mean, you're, you are a writer. You are an artist. So, I mean, I can just see it. I can just see you penning that story from yeah, your how do you? How do you, just, I mean, I tried at one point, I start, as I fall asleep, I'm thinking, and I actually got to the point where I was writing the first page and it's so tumultuous and it's so otherworldly. I mean, um, Keith Richards did very well. Very well, excellent. Very, book. very well, very articulate. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't ghost written, it was edited mm -hmm. by somebody that was very good at that stuff and could out, and they probably just ran a tape and let him talk and then you put it together and he okayed what he liked. Maybe. I can't see Pete the pen doing it, but, uh, but I could probably do it like this. I don't know. I've been told he's very, very literate. And yeah, I, he might have written more than you think, I think. Yeah, you know, but he's, he's, he's talking about, you know, Bader Meinhof and all these, and, and, you know, this London, which was, there's a guy, if, you, if you're into a book, read this. It's by Kieran Pym, and it's called um, Jumping Jack Flash, David Litvinoff, and the Rock and Roll Underworld. David Litvinoff. Okay. I, you, this, it's on the screen. I'll, I'll grab it. Uh, but, yeah. But this guy knew George Melly and was living on the Thames with George, and then he was part of all this sort of, like, wild gay culture in Soho and the drinking clubs. And then he was the mastermind of performance, the movie. It was all based on, and he was like writing it. He was like, 
he was a personal friend of Eric Clapton's. He was living with all the royalty, the like beatniks. The, but this guy, it's, yeah. like, it's like Zelig, you know, wherever you look, there, there's like, you know, this, <laughs> but this guy is the most important guy uh, of the 60s. Wow. In Britain. This man, you have no idea the influence he had on rock and roll art. And he was wow. like out of his mind. It was like, you know, like everything was art. And he hung out with the Cray Twins. He was deep in that gangster thing I was talking about before, about the 50s. This guy, I mean, it's just, it's, and it's so well written. This guy's only written one book. Wow. And at the end, there's, there's like a hundred pages about memory. And you get all these very sort of uh, titled bohemian types in London that are they're part of the royal family in some distant way. They're, they're like artists and poets. And, uh, and some of the things that come up, it's life-changing. It's a life-changing, wow. yeah. Wow. That's uh, a read. I'm gonna check it out. So, okay, so let's talk about some of these people that you just mentioned. How, how did you team up with Alison Krauss? How did that happen? Well, I, um, I was making a record called Downtown. Mm -hmm. It was just re-recording some stuff and putting some tracks that I'd finally got the copyrights back to. And it's just to, just to put something out to get some interest to get a couple of reviews. So I just put my name out there so I could tour. And I got to Missing You and I, and I couldn't think of any other way to do it but do a duet. And I thought, well, who? and I'd watched Alison from a distance, um, watching the Country Music Channel. I think it was called the American Music Channel when I was recording Figure in a Landscape. And I'd always, I was always aware of bluegrass. And she's beautiful, you know, she, you had to notice her, but she was great. And I was in Nashville, I was living there recording, and my manager made the call and said, do you want to sing with John Waite? And she told me later that she was in the back of the room and the call came in and she just said, yeah. And a couple of days later, we met and, and sang the duet, you know, it was, uh, and became quite good friends. And, uh, I went and played the Opry with her and uh, hung out with, uh, when she was doing the Robert Plant thing, got to hang out with her and Robert and see a lot of that tour and become part of that world. But I, I got to meet Larry Sparks, the bluegrass guitar player, and um, Del McCurry and the Whites. I saw a lot of the, the bluegrass scene. Uh, it was really charming. You know, I mean, the bluegrass people are really, uh, incredible. They're just really authentic. The country people can be sneaky. They're like, you know, they're like showbiz, you know, and they know the game and they can be really rough. But the bluegrass people were just the sweetest, you know. That's an interesting, I've never heard that observation before. That's interesting. <laughs> sneaky. I like it. And, and how about playing with Ringo and doing the all-star band? I mean, the ring, how, what, how, what, wow. I mean, getting back to having Ringo play drums while you're singing. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I know. What the hell? Yeah, I know. I know. I mean, if you go back to me being like nine, watching the Beatles first, uh, performance on black and white TV. And then my mum taking me to the pictures to see Hard Day's Night because I couldn't go by myself. Um, and idolizing 
these four guys and you know McCartney and Lennon and George and all that and, and Ringo was extremely popular but very funny and then years later you're playing with him I mean this it's like the world is smaller than you might think you know I got the I just I got the phone call one day from my manager at the time said do you want to play with Ringo and I'd been offered a, a Broadway play and um I was really thinking about doing that. Can you tell us what it is or not? No, it was, you know, I didn't come out. I, I, I didn't go for the audition. I was, I was talking to him. It was actually a musical. It was the Aida, I think it was. And, but I was going to play the villain, uh, which, which was just right up my street. You know, it was not, <laughs> it, it wasn't going to be like, you know, pop star. It was, and the songs were great. I think the songs were Elton John songs. Mm. But it was powerful, you know, and I was really thinking about doing that. Probably, you know, uh, professional suicide in the in the hip world, but I don't care about that. It was going to be interesting, you know. So I was going to do it because it was interesting. And the phone rang, and it says, you know, do you want to go and play with Ringo? And I said, yeah. And I just put the phone down. And then as soon as I put the phone down, I thought, oh fuck, you know, I'm going to have to go back to playing bass. I got to learn the bass again. And um, I just started sleeping with a guitar, you know. And um, as the tour got like four months out, they said who else was going to be in the band. And I had to learn their songs and do it well. You know, I mean, I, I didn't even want to sing. By the time I arrived for rehearsals, I was asking not to sing harmonies. Just wanted to be at the back, play the bass, do a great job. And if they wanted me to come out and sing a song, that was great. But I just wanted to do the right thing, you know. It was nerve-wracking, you know, it really was. Was it fun once it got underway? Did you have a good time with it? Well, a lot of egos, you know, a lot of egos. It was kind of sticky because everybody's like, you know, you got people who have number one records. Right. And then at the back of it, you got Ringo. Okay. I mean, he's like, you know, it's, a, it's you know, and I'm a bass, but I just wanted to be quiet on the end and nail it. I mean, Paul Carrick, The Living Years, and um, some of the songs from Squeeze, I mean, and How Long. And he's, a, he's probably one of the, if not the keyboard player in, in, uh, in contemporary pop, rock, music, or whatever, but it's him. There isn't anybody else. He has incredible taste. And he plays like he, he just, it, there's Bill Evans in there somewhere. It's like really beautiful. And I just wanted to do the right thing with those songs, you know. But uh, I don't think I'd do it again. I mean, it was, it was really something. But it, once is enough, you know. Well, you played with the Beatles. You did it. You yeah. Did. You know, I could uh, look back and say, yeah. My I, mom and dad liked it, you know. I bet. Have you, do you know Paul? Has that I, I, Paul, I was playing uh, Radio City Music Hall that mm -hmm. night with Ringo. And I'm just like, I'm back in New York City, my, my, my home, really. And I'm walking down 57th Street, just in the sunshine, just trying to get some air. And Paul is walking towards me with his, with his wife, the blonde, the blonde girl he's divorced from now. And uh, he looks at me and I look at Paul and we're about 20 feet away. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and we got level and bless him. He raised his eyebrow and looked at me like, you know, 
hey, you know, and I went like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I just nodded and I didn't even say hello. I nodded and I just kept walking. I, my brain was too full of Ringo. I couldn't handle another Beatle. <laughs> you know, honestly. And he, I, I could tell you, give me this look like, how's it going? And I just, I, you know, I'm trying. But uh, wow. I kept walking. I just kept walking. I'm sure you've gotten to meet a lot of your heroes as yeah. course of your career. Anybody stand out as being somebody who exceeded yeah. your expectation? Yeah, I, two weeks or a week after I moved to New York City, I was living on 72nd Street, and I, I, I was, um, I was missing my girlfriend, and um, it wasn't working out. It just what I was by myself. It, I, it just seemed overwhelming. And I had some friends, Carol Kay and Ricky Bird. They were like friends. Ricky Bird, and Ricky Bird is one of my oldest friends. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like a small world. Anyway, I think I, I went, I went, it wasn't with Ricky and Carol, but I went into tracks. Mm -hmm. and, um, I was completely, I, all I listened to, I had three cassettes for the Walkman. One was Pretenders 2. One was Diamond Dogs, David Bowie, mm -hmm. and one was um, um, Face Dances, I think it's called, by The Who, um, with You Better You Bet On. Uh -huh. And I walked into track, sat down, and I'm drinking Budweiser. And um, Pete Townsend walks in, and I'm in a booth at the end, with Mick Jagger and Jerry Hall. <laughs> and, and I, it, you know, he's like a god to me. He was like, um, I mean, Townsend is like the poet laureate of, of rock. You know, he's, he's the British, I mean, I, you know, I mean, he's just incredible. I just saw them at the Hollywood Bowl right before the pandemic. It was maybe one of the greatest concerts I've ever been to in my lifetime. He still plays his ass off and Roger still sings his ass off. Yeah. It's it's an, it's almost a religious thing to watch the oh. I saw him play at Lancaster University when I was eighteen, and it was religious. Oh. It was I can't even describe. And you know, you see footage from like Paris uh, on the Tommy tours, and it's just and it's held a one camera, and you just go like, what? The? It's bigger than life. It's life itself. Anyway, but Townsend walks in, and he gets on stage. Jagger's up, sort of like you know, being Jagger trying to. <laughs> trying to light up the room kind of thing on <laughs> the building and uh jerry looks beautiful but he's got his big baggy suit on uh, rough boys had just come out the year before but he looked just like from the video unshaven unkempt white shirt doc martins and uh, it looks like a johnson suit and um he goes on stage and starts tuning up and i thought Fuck it and i run up and i said hey do you mind if i sing one he said yeah and we're both on stage and he's kicked something off and I start singing something. I don't know what it was, but I was up there for like 20 minutes and we played like four different jams. And then he he comes over and says, do you mind if I sing one? I said, yeah, thanks, man. And like walked. But that's the reason I stayed in New York. Wow. I mean, he was a god to me, still is really. You know, empty glasses just, you know. Um. And, and I'd played with him and he was a really sweet, big, Look like a fucking teddy bear with a suit on. It's huge nose, but he was Townsend, uh, you know, and he was authentic. It wasn't like some idiot that's like, you know, 
that's hanging out by the bar. Yeah, I'm in the building. You know, it was like it was he was on stage and he was like a, a mile high. And about two months later, I went in again and uh, Carol brought Steve Marriott. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, again, you know, just a god to me. And me and Steve talked all night about music and then got on stage, the same stage, and played through some blues. Wow. And, uh, you know, so my I I got off to a running start in New York. <clears throat> I really did. Wow. Did you did you ever did you do that? Would you go to like the China Club and I mean I did the yeah. China and you'd get up, you weren't on my nights, damn it. But yeah, yeah, but I, I I jammed with Stevie Wonder once in the in the oh. uh, in the in the China Club. Wow. He, he was sitting. He was sitting in the audience, and I, I walked up and said, "Hey, John Witt, missing you." And I'm like, "Oh yeah," and I, <laughs> a huge fan. Do you want to get up and play something? And we got up, and he was doing superstition, and he's going ding 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 That's superstition. And uh, take it, John. And I froze. <laughs> I couldn't remember any of the words. I said, "Take it back, Stevie." And, uh, and uh, but you know, I, I've had some really great moments. Uh, there are people, I, you know, the music business is is like you meet people who are just off the beam. They're clever. They might be successful, but they're all about them. And it's it's like a game, and they're they're intrigued by it or whatever. And they're basic, they're pretty transparent. And then you meet these other people who are like carved in stone. You know, they're soulful, compassionate, fiery, angry, desperate, whatever. But they're artists, you know, and you can see it a mile off. Mm. You know, you go backstage to somebody, it's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah. Can you play my new record? And it's like, get the fuck out, you know? And then you meet these other people who are dead serious, look you in the eyes and talk to you. And they're the people I talk to, really. I love the fact that you do that when you come off stage, that you talk to the people who wait. Oh yeah. I mean, we have a meet and greet and I try to, I really do try to spend like five minutes with everybody. I mean, why not? I mean, it's gonna mean, I mean, those people that I met did that with me. Mm -hmm. Townsend, Marriott. I, the next day he invited me over to his house for Sunday lunch. Oh. Yeah, and um, you know Bowie. I mean Bowie played oh. with a lot, a lot of my musicians, Alan Childs and and uh, Carmine Rojas, all those guys, you know. And um, oh, when I was doing a press junket in Europe, they were doing Hamburg or something, and Bowie David sent an invitation. Do you want to come to the show? And you know we'll take care of you. And I got to the show, and he put me in a, a like a, a gantry by the side of the stage. Carmine, run up, give me a bottle of wine. Bowie walks out, smiles at me, and then does the whole show. And um, I saw him in the China Club about two months later. And I said, thanks. It was a great night. And he said, I could hear you. You know, Aww. but I mean, people, people, you know, those people, they might have a defense. They might have a, a like a tank. But inside of them, they're the most fragile and they're the most human. And therefore, they have compassion. Mm -hmm. And all this arena rock shit and people running around shredding and all that crap. And, you know, it's like, get, just get away from me. You know, I mean, I, it's bullshit, really. But the, the ones that are great, it's like, it's, it's, it's incredible when you meet them. I love that. And, and I think, and I, 
I, I agree with you that if, if somebody's got that artist's soul, because the ones that don't and that are just full of themselves, I, I don't yeah. know how they're really artists. Yeah, but the, the, you never judge um, the artist by the art. That's what they say. I mean, it's like um, some people are just gifted and, and they can, you know, but they're, they're, they're just barely there or they're just the weirdest people. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's sad. John, I have, um, I'm, I'm so grateful that we didn't even talk about it, but Sandy Gennaro, who I've known for oh. years, and that's why you're here, because I just happened to see his post on Facebook, and he was in a picture with you, and I was like, Sandy, what? And, yes. then, uh, what? and then you found me on LinkedIn the next day, and, th and that's why you're here, because it all kind of started. And it's I love the fact that you do your thing on LinkedIn mostly. I see most of your posts are on yeah, LinkedIn. Yeah, no, I, I try to. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of press and podcasts that just, and, and promotion and people that I, I haven't seen for years that once they got wind out a record out, they were, I'm on that show, they're playing the record, the, you know, I, it's like, thanks, you know, but, but uh, I have a big uh, Facebook thing and, and Twitter, but there's a lot of professionals on, on LinkedIn and you, you meet people you haven't seen for years. It's wonderful. Frank Filippetti, the producer, just two days ago, said, hey, John, it's me. Where have you been? And uh, just great stuff. You know, Jeff Van Dyne, my tour manager. There he is. I tried to find you on Twitter. I actually had trouble finding you on Twitter. I really? No, no. Just like John Waite. Um, um, it wasn't just John Waite, because there were a whole bunch of John Waite things, but none of them were the official you. That I, I think John Waite official would be the one. Okay. I'll go back and look. And also, for people who want to find your music, your art, it's johnwaitworldwide.com. That's where you can find John's stuff. We can buy your art on there. We can yeah. buy music on there. Everything's accessible on your website. Also, yeah. on your tour dates, you have like a whole, you're going to be out for. Yeah. We're going to Europe too. If, if You know, it's, it's really, um, it's weird. You know, I've got used to being a painter and, and burying my nose in a book. And now I'm sort of back. But it's great, you know. Does it feel good? Yeah. When it kicks in, it's great. You know, I mean, I don't get nervous anymore. I think if, if there was like a riot in the front row or the stage got hit by lightning, I would take great pride in just keeping going. You know, <laughs> something about being, there's something about being a professional mm -hmm. and you kind of wear it as you get older. You sort of like say, yes, that's right. I can do this. And, um, it's great to, to play to people. I mean, the communication of it, the release for both sides is, is pretty great, you know. I, I love that you're doing it. I love that you're happy doing it. Somebody asked me which vaccine you got. I, I can't go without. Moderna? You got the Moderna. Yeah, so I had a reaction too. Did you get sick the next day? Because the next day. Yeah, no, everybody, everybody gets sick. My mm -hmm. mom, my mom, who's like 96 now, didn't get sick. But I, I got sick for like... Uh, 36 hours I yeah. thought you know the world was gonna, it was like having oh yeah it was the worst it was it was it was horrible and the uh, second jab the second jab too can really the second, jab, the, killed me. the second yeah. jab was like mm, yeah not good but I'm glad you got it and I'm glad yeah. you're, you're you're getting out there and people are seeing you I'm still afraid to do that so do you go to restaurants again and sit and do all of that and yeah well you know I I you know, after after the um, pandemic, I just decided 
enough, uh, the cork was going back in the bottle. You know, it, it was like time to straighten up, fly right, get back on the beam, write a new record and go out and deliver. And I, I just got, I think, you know, I, I just got sick of wine. I had so much of it in the pandemic with the lockdown. The effect wasn't the same. I, I, I graduated into, like, I'm, I'm trying to write a new record uh, all by myself without any kind of guitar player coming in and was kicking a, a really personal one-off in the style of um, Wooden Heart. Mm. And I think when you're, it's weird, you know, being completely sober because you really have to face the person you are. Okay, we have to, I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't going to go, I'm sober. I've been sober for 19 years. So God bless I, you. I, I was going to ask you about that. So was, you said you put the cork back in the bottle. Now, did you ever have a period in your life where drugs, alcohol got in your way? Oh yeah. Well, uh, there's, you know, there's heroin and there's cocaine and there's alcohol and all those three things are in major play. When you're a musician, you, their access to that, the sex, drugs, rock and roll. I mean, I, I hate to, um, I, you know, I don't really reveal anything, but I mean, I certainly have done every drug in the universe, but I was very fortunate that I always knew when to stop. And I had friends of mine that died, mm -hmm. you know, died. Bobby Chouinard. Oh, I Bobby, yes. Yeah, sweet Bobby. And um, what a great musician. And Bobby just had a heart attack. Freebasing, really, he just that's how he spent his time, mm -hmm. and other friends that just died because they they lived so so hard when they were younger, and I've been all over the map. I've done the whole thing, but there was always this voice in the back of my head that said, "Enough," mm -hmm. and I was always able to get up and leave, and I could flirt with any kind of drug or whatever, and when it stopped being fun. It didn't get funky, as David Boy would say. It's like, I just knew when to stop. So I was able to sort of live in all those different worlds. But drugs never got out of control. They made, you, you'd know it when it did. You would know that you were like waking up or not waking up. You were still awake two days later mm -hmm. thinking, what the fuck did I do? I'm swearing off it. But I mean, in the end, it just stops working. It isn't. And some people, unfortunately, can't stop. Mm -hmm. And it's just like you, you watch them go off the edge of the world, you know, and it's terrible. Some real talent, you know. I mean, some real talent that should still be with us didn't come out the other side, you know. But uh, I certainly lived that life, you know. And That's so a documentary, too. Stop on a so you've put the cork back in the bottle? You're not drinking wine now? No, I just completely decided it's only a couple of months but i mean um it certainly is great i mean i feel energized clear creative i'm straight ahead with people i'm not avoiding issues i just get right to it and i'm thinking that that's going to be a a, a whole different aspect of, of a writing process you know i love that i think that's true i wrote my book sober and I used to think that I could never be funny or do any of that sober and I think we're funnier and smarter and more creative yeah I do too what's your book called it's called don't jump sex drugs rock and roll and my fucking mother 
And uh, that's the charm. Oh, whoa. I love my mother. My mother just turned 90. Yeah. She's amazing. Like your mother's still beautiful. And it, it, it's, it's, I make an amends to my mother in the book, actually. I'm going to send you a copy. I'm going to yeah, send you a copy. I would love to have one. And I'll, I'll send you a picture. I would love that. I would love yeah. that. Before we go, would you play a little something for us and play us out? <clears throat> well, I'll play you a Donovan song because it's really easy. Okay. I'll take the glasses off too. In the chilly hours and minutes of uncertainty, yeah, long to be in the warm hold of your loving mind. And to feel you all around me now would be the sweetest thing. Yeah, it made me sing Oh, but I may as well Try and catch the wind Oh, but I may as well Try and catch the wind Oh, I love that song. I love you, John. It has been... Uh so delightful to i really enjoy speaking with you i felt it would like kindred spirit you know so old friends it feels that way yeah. i look forward to more you and um thank you so much for doing this thank you so much i really enjoyed it uh let don't go off air because i'm going to give you my address okay well i have to end the end this thing but i'll 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 get you back privately okay. yeah thanks john See you soon. Bye.